Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Welcome back to part two of the best of 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope everybody's year is off to a really great start. Can you believe it's 2023? I can, actually, I can. Most of the time, I'm in a little bit of disbelief. And this year, no, I'm not surprised at all. I almost bared witness to the intense velocity at to which this year, this last year, just sped by. <laughs> I was totally seeing it as it happened, just with every day that would go by. Just, I think too, it sounds a little kind of passive in saying it in that way, but I actually really did enjoy 2022. It was a great year. My book came out that year. It's truly been a great year. I mean, so many, so many ups and downs, so many great news, so many bad news. There's just so much to really take in. I actually, before we go into your top three, I'd love to hear maybe what your top three lessons are for the year. We could just share those before we go into your top three episodes. Oh, goodness. Off the top of my head, I usually... And I haven't done this yet, but I usually spend some time in reflection to give a, a better, more intelligent answer. So this is going to be <laughs> off the cuff, y'all. So <laughs> we love off the cuff here. Front and this, is an off the, this is an off the cuff show. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. It's it's nice to see what comes up initially without having to kind of overanalyze it or overthink it. So the question is, what has stood out to me the most in the past year? What have I learned the most? And I think. I've taken some steps outside of my comfort zone. I've taken more of, as y'all have noticed, more of a, a forefront role in interviewing podcast guests. And that can be pretty intimidating, right? Because these people are like doctors, they're philosophers, they're writers. They, they have some claim to fame behind their names. So I get a little bit, what is the word? I'm thinking of Amy Cutting. It's like, I feel like I have to fake it till I make it. Yeah. yeah. Like a, it's the impo- Is it the imposter syndrome? Imposter. Yeah. Okay. Imposter syndrome. Exactly. Yeah. And so I'll go back and I'll, because it's part of my job, I'll have to listen to myself, give these interviews <laughs> and I have to really practice. This is a lesson that I've learned to be nice to myself and say, you prepared for this, you did the best you could, and it came out well. So that's something that I've been working on learning how to do. And I feel like it is a practice and <laughs> yeah. is worthwhile, but also believing in myself that I should be doing this, that it's okay to be visible. It's okay to have a voice that thousands of people will hear. I'd say that's the second lesson. And third, gosh, 
I'm sure I said this last year, but for me, my relationship with money is in constant flux. (laughs) And with so many layoffs in late 2022 and so many hard conversations that my partner and I have had and my responsibility to the household and really wanting to contribute to the household and actually starting to do that again as a... I love what you said last episode, a solopreneur instead of an entrepreneur because that's that's what we are. I'm starting to take on more financial responsibility in this position, which I haven't really done before because my partner was so gracious with like, okay, just focus on you. I got the bills. And while that was nice for a couple of years, I can't live like that forever. I need to feel like I'm contributing. And so it's just a matter of kind of like reprioritizing my needs and my wants and being really mindful with spending while also taking care of myself, you know, so... I think that's great, Tessa. Well, I'm like, I think everybody can relate to that. Everyone. Yeah. So it's been a year of learning and (sighs) growing as they always are. For me, it flew by. Yeah, it absolutely. I'm telling you, it feels like it just sped through. And now here, well, we did lose like two years. You know what? I don't want to keep saying that. You know, I feel like everybody keeps saying... I feel like we've lost two years of our lives. We didn't. We were just fully present to what was happening. It just, we had to live and make do with the circumstances that we had. Mm -hmm. And that actually showed us how resilient we are. I think it's great that we all made it through and that we all had those two years because it showed us how bendable we actually are. So Mm -hmm. I want to stop saying this whole like, we lost two years of our lives. Anyway, that's just my own thing. People maybe agree, don't agree. That's okay. There's a, a quote by a novelist that I really like, Paul Borland. Do you know him? No. He's like a... I don't know. Paul Borland. Like a, from the like 1900s. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's like a... I feel like it's like a Western quote or something. I had written it down in one of my journals and I was going through my journals. I'm kind of organizing my office and I found it. It's And it, it was right an entry at the beginning of the year for 2013. Because I wanted to see, I'm like, what did I write on New Year's for 2013, 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. We also have big birthdays coming up this year. Just oh my saying. gosh. Yes. Anyway, this is what it says. It says, years end is neither an end nor a beginning, but a going on with all the wisdom that experience can instill in us. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? Yes. I just feel like so much of that wisdom, unless we put it to work, just goes unnoticed. We just don't pay attention to it. So what are your top three lessons from 2022? I love that I asked you and I was like, oh, she's going to ask me and I'm going to answer. And I literally am like a deer in headlights right now. Drawing a blank. Yeah, Maybe, maybe that's one. I think the first thing I learned is to stay calm. I know this sounds trite because of what I do for a living, but I feel like there was a lot of moments that happened this year where I could feel my my old tape of anxiety coming up and going into this really downward spiral of panic. And I really focused on staying calm. And I, I really feel like that was something that I'm not saying I got good at it. <laughs> I don't know if you can, I mean, I guess you could get good at being more grounded. But I will say that my techniques really served me. 
So I'll say that I learned that staying calm is more fruitful at the end of the day than the opposite. I think the second thing was to just give things time. And I would say the third thing is don't rush into things. (laughs) I guess those two go hand in hand. Look, I'm a patient person. We've talked about this before. I'm not innately. I'm innately impatient, but I've learned to be patient because I've seen the benefits of what patience can bring. I've talked about this before with my book process. Had it happened back when I wanted it to have happened, it wouldn't have impacted the same way. I wouldn't have done the same type of job. So I'm glad that it took time. I'm glad that it took as long as it did. I'm glad that everything that I've, all the seeds that I've planted into the ground, I'm glad that it's taken the time it has, or I wouldn't value it as much as I do now. I almost feel like the time that we wait, the time in which we see something grow and we're not trying to speed up the process, it really allows us to enjoy the flourishing of it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I feel like that's part of what we're doing here. And then the last thing, not rushing into anything, I feel like sometimes when you're in this state of not knowing, you might tend to rush into something that you've not fully thought out. And sometimes they can be very expensive lessons. Oh, expensive lessons. Yes. Yeah. Very expensive (laughs) lessons, which I've had plenty of talking about money, right? Like, so yeah, I think that that's what I learned. And I'm excited to go into 2023 with this reflection of the last year and, and, you know, make, make a goal to, you know, be open for 2023. I love that goal. Be open. Yeah. yeah some big milestones coming up for yes, us. For us. We are, we're heading into the next decade of our lives. Of All right. Well, that being said, Tessa, what are your top three? So gosh, hard to choose top three, but the ones that stick out to me and I feel like such fun interviews, people that really inspired me to take our conversation and put it into practice. I'm going to go in chronological order here. Do it. The first one is actually from season eight, but this is best of 2022. So I took liberty and went back. To okay. okay. That's cool. And the guest is Nadine Kenny Johnstone. And she is a writer and she is such a lovely person to listen to and speak with. And I think what... What I took away from this are just really practical because we've talked about this before. You all know I'm an aspiring novelist. I've written a book of poetry, but that elusive novel I keep putting off for all of these reasons, Nadine really helped give me some practical tools to work on that. And then the other thing that I loved that she she shared with me was this idea that it's really never too late to start your writing journey. She used this example of... I think it was a woman in her 80s or 90s who wrote her first book with Nadine's coaching techniques. And so I was just like, oh, it's just never, it really is never too late. And how cool is that? So, and then my second pick is from season nine, from last season. It's it's a fairly recent one. Omi, Sade, Bernie, Scott. And we got to talk about all the things that are just top of mind for me. And I think that in our society traditionally have been taboo topics because we don't really talk about things like menopause and aging as women as much. 
And so our conversation was just so uplifting and validating as a woman heading into my fourth decade on this planet and thinking about things like, okay, I'm going to start transitioning again into menopause and my hormones are really going to change. And what does this mean for me as a woman? And that can be kind of scary if you don't well, for me, I felt like, okay, this is really scary. And then I talked to Omi Shade and I was like, okay, I feel better. It's just part of life. It's, it's part of the cycle. And now I have some practical tools to work with. And she's just a lovely, lovely person. And so I'm excited to have everyone revisit that conversation with us. And then finally, the sleep prescription with Dr. Eric Prather. He's just such a sweetheart and has done so much research on the science of sleep. He does work at an insomnia clinic in California. And he has some really interesting insights into you know how insomnia develops and what we can do to combat that. And we talk about things like how our sleep devices, like sleep trackers, such as the Aura Ring. You know, I talked about how we have a sleep number bed, which is this really fancy bed that tracks your sleep and it gives you a sleep score. And it's so funny to me, and I talk about this in the episode, how militant I am about getting to sleep at a certain time and what my room looks like in order to sleep as compared to my partner who is willy-nilly in my opinion and I say that with all the love in the world <laughs> about having the blue screen in front of his face until like 11 p.m and does all the things that sleep hygiene I'm using quotes here say not to do he does all these things but he sleeps like a baby and he doesn't get up once in the middle of the night and his sleep score compared to mine, his is in the nineties and mine is on average in the seventies. So I think there's something to be definitely learned from this episode and something to be said from just kind of relaxing into whatever your natural circadian rhythm is, which we also talk about so many good wisdom nuggets in there. I'm excited to revisit that one too. Well, I'm really excited to hear all of these people again in my ears with your voice. Happy New Year, friends. It is a new year and a new opportunity to start something fresh. And what better way to start something fresh than with new kitchenware with Caraway? With our exclusive discount, you can now save on the full suite of Caraway products, including food storage, tea kettle, and mini cookware. And you all know I love cooking, but I'm also aware of all the toxic materials that are typically found in some of those kitchen wares from, I'm not gonna name any names. Some of my favorite features of Caraway's cookware is that it's non-toxic. They are always made without non-toxic materials. And like, I can't even pronounce all of the chemicals that are in everyday cookware that people use. Needless to say, the last thing you wanna be worried about when you're cooking is toxic chemicals. So why not go with something non-toxic like caraway products that are made without any toxic materials and you're using ceramics naturally slick surface, which means minimal oil or butter for those slide off the pan eggs and easy cleaning. So get yours today. Visit carawayhome.com forward slash loved to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off of your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners. So visit carawayhome.com forward slash loved or use the code loved at checkout. Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern.
when I first started writing, I went to graduate school for writing. That's how excited and invested mm-hmm. I was. But I first started as a fiction writer mm-hmm. and I was writing very thinly veiled autobiography because they didn't feel like my life was exciting enough or important enough to just share straightforwardly. And it wasn't until my husband and I were going through infertility that all I could write was straightforward nonfiction. I couldn't write fiction anymore because what we were going through just felt like it needed to be processed. So I happened to write this essay about the process and the heartache. And a writing mentor encouraged me to write that and to send it out. And still, I felt like who could even relate to this or will they think I'm strange? And I had all these thoughts. I wasn't used to writing so openly and vulnerably and raw. And I submitted the essay to a magazine and they got back to me right away and wanted to publish it. And ironically enough, it was for their parenting issue. And I had an essay that was about not being able at that time to become a parent. And so I really didn't think they would go for it, but they did immediately. And kind of different from my other work, I ended up getting all these personal responses to it from readers. And that's when I realized like, maybe there is something here. There is something really healing about writing the truth and writing what you're going through. And so fast forward, I I realized that anytime I was writing something honest and true and vulnerable, not in an oversharing way, but just like, this is what we're going through. Maybe I'm not alone. Without fail, the resounding response was yes, and me too, and all of these other, you know, just affirmations and validations that yes, I'm going through that too from a reader. And so what I wanted was for other women to experience that too. And so just kind of organically, as I would present at writing workshops and things, I got the opportunity to mentor women writers and talk to them about their writing. And one day, one of the women said, can you coach me? I want to write a book and I don't know how to do it and you've done it. So can you coach me? And she was in her her early eighties and like, she was like, I want to get this out. I want my grandkids to read it. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's try. And I found that as I helped her with the craft, what I was also really doing kind of on an emotional level was giving permission. Like you are worthy and deserving of telling your story. Your story can be really healing for yourself and other people. So I realized there was kind of a holistic component happening. It wasn't just about the craft and walked her through bit by bit, like how to, how to do this. It was all her words, but just helping her see how to, how to craft and create a narrative arc and then put it together as a book and then get it out into the world. And her book came out, actually, um, she worked diligently, slowly, diligently. Her book came out five months ago, D.D. Carr, Diana Carr, it's called The Diplomite. So it's just like one of many stories where I got to see this woman come into her own, tell her story, feel like she was worthy of telling it and then put it out there. And and this has happened many, many, many times over where I get to witness a woman telling her story. And what actually ends up happening is that she's taking her pain and the beauty of her life. She's putting it on the page and she's making sense of it and making meaning of it and then giving it to someone else and creating connections. So it's like, it's such a rewarding experience 
that that's what I want for any woman who's interested in, in writing and putting writing out into the world. It's not just about the writing. It's about what happens to your, your heart, your soul in the process. Mm, that's so beautiful. Didi Carr, Diana Carr. What was yeah, the title? Diana Carr, the diplomite. Yeah. So she talked about as a young child, like traveling the world and being able to live in all these different countries. Her father was a U.S. representative. And so um, she wanted to share how important it is for us to learn about other cultures and other countries. And yeah. <gasps> Wow, yeah, and there are cool. many. I could list off. I could rattle off so many women whose books have have just come out. Like uh, Arlene Falk, she just had a book come out. One of my coaching clients, walking on pins and needles, about her MS journey and finding kind of holistic healing. Mm-hmm. On and on it goes, but it, it's just like wow, these women are taking their pain, they're putting it onto the page, and then now it's outside of their body and they've processed it, but then they get to help other women feel less alone. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, and so you mentioned thinly veiled fiction. I'm wondering, because I'm an aspiring fiction writer myself, I'm wondering, is there a way to to use that life story, veil it with fiction? Because it's so scary to think about, okay, this is, I'm putting this out there as nonfiction memoir. And then it's not just me and my story, it's my family. You know, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling all of these people into it with me, whether or not they, you know, want to be known as <laughs> having gone through this or being the perpetrator of helping me go through something, you know? So I wonder is, can you use fiction writing in that same way? For sure. And the only reason why I said, you know, my, my thinly veiled story was because I didn't realize it at the time. Like Uh, I was like, I'm writing fiction. And (laughs) (laughs) my writing group was like, this is your life. (laughs) There's nothing fictional to it. Uh So I was, I was mostly like tricking myself. Absolutely. You know, it is a genuine concern and anyone who does set out to write creative nonfiction and memoir does have to be very, very mindful in the editing stages of Mm. whose story they're putting out into the world. And I always say, also, you have to understand, are you writing out of revenge in any way? Because that's a no, no, you know, you, you have to be in a, a very grounded place to be able to put nonfiction out into the world and respect other people's stories as well as put your own out there. So it is, it is a genuine concern. And certainly writing fiction can have this same cathartic, rewarding effect and process for you. And I think what it comes down to is, is simply a reader will connect with anything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, as long as there are some universal truths there. And, and a universal truth, you know, is what connects us to the story in a human way that no matter what the character's experience is, there's something within that experience that the reader can connect to. And as long as writing has that, doesn't matter the genre, sci-fi, it doesn't matter, fantasy, as long as there's that human element, the reader will connect. You said genre, and I'm currently listening to the audiobook Words Are My Matter by Ursula K. Le Guin. Ooh, I have to check that out. Uh, she talks, I'm, well, I'm in this section right now where she's talking about genre and the issue or the problem with 
using genre to categorize books. And it, oh, yeah. as we're, we're kind of discussing the differences between fiction and nonfiction, and this conversation is going through my head with Ursula K. Le Guin's voice in, in the background. So that's something also I would, in any aspiring writers in the audience, I'll add a link to the sh- in the show notes for that too. Um, yeah. And I highly recommend you check it out too, if you haven't, it's really interesting. Because there is a problem with categorization and pigeonholing. And, yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, when I look at and this is like, I have, you know, next to you, zero experience with this. I have a book of poetry. It's called mm-hmm. The Dark Moon, a book of poetry for Shavasana. But I haven't actually written a memoir or a fiction. So this is coming from that very new, young perspective of writing. <laughs> yeah. So everyone take it with a grain of salt. But I guess what I'm wondering is... You know, where do we start writing a novel or a memoir or whatever it is you're thinking about writing that you want to put out there into the world? It feels like such a daunting task. Oh, yeah. And it's such a muscle that we have to learn how to flex and use, just like a bicep curl or going for a run. You know, you have this goal of running a marathon, maybe. What a daunting task, right? And if we don't have these coaches and these processes in place, where do we actually start with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it can be so overwhelming. So if anyone listening is an aspiring writer and you're feeling really overwhelmed, you're not alone. This is completely normal. I mean, it is like telling someone to just go start running a marathon if they've had no training. And even if they have, it's still daunting. So one of the things that I learned in graduate school is something that I still teach almost weekly. So we have a community of writers. I, I call it writer workout. We meet every Monday online and we, I give prompts and we write together just to kind of get through the writer's block. And so when I'm teaching them every Monday on zoom, one of the first things that we always do is I say, pay attention to what you're paying attention to, because that is the access point. So it doesn't matter what you're writing, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, et cetera. Your creativity is zoned in on something and it shows that to you by whatever you're paying attention to. And so I have the writers write a list of what am I paying attention to today or what have I been paying attention to lately? And this is super interesting. Just the other day, I wrote down a list and I wrote down cardinals on the list because they're everywhere. I'm in the Midwest right now and it's just like cardinals everywhere. And I'm like, I'm really curious about them. What's going on with them? And you just write a list of these different things that are taking your attention. And those become the access point where you just ask yourself, okay, what am I curious about, about that thing? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, the other day, so we have a trampoline in our backyard that my son and I jump on. And the other day I was, I was meditating after my meditation, I was looking out the windows and I was watching the bird feeder and having this really blissful moment. And then one of the cardinals went to fly to the bird feeder, but instead went into the trampoline and it started frantically circling and it's like caught in the net. And I got panicked for the bird and I wanted to go out there and kind of direct it and shoot it. And I just watched this cardinal circle, circle in the net and I'm going, fly up, fly up, just look up. It's right there in the sky. Look up, look up. Finally it did and it went up. 
And I was like, that's a metaphor. If I ever saw (laughs) there's something there to it. And how does that relate to my life? And then you take it a step further. How do I feel like a bird caught in a net? And like within five minutes, you've got a story, you've got something there. And so you never know whatever little thing you're paying attention to, how it can open up an entire story for you. So if, if you're just like, how do I begin? And you want a five minute way to begin, start with that. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Write a list and see what story might unfold from one of those things. There's one that keeps jumping out at me and I have a regular tarot practice and journal practice too. And I, as I was looking forward to this interview, I was like, oh, I want to ask Omi Shade, what her answer is to this, if you don't mind. Go for it. And it's from the element of air. And the question is, what do you look forward to most as you age? Mm, That's one of my favorite questions. That question comes up for me quite often. I sometimes, I feel like I live a lot in the air element and in the earth element. And that's interesting because today the tarot card that came up for me was the four of pentacles. I really look forward to the learning that I continue to get to do. I have moved into a creative identity that I wasn't always comfortable with. I felt like I would tuck it into my work. Mm -hmm. So it was like a very easy way for me to be creative without putting myself out there as a creative. So that way, if I wasn't legitimately showing up with a creative identity in a way that people could say was a, was legible to them and that they could say, oh, she's a performer. She's a visual artist. She's a storyteller. She's whatever that I could hide behind. Well, I tucked my creative identity into my training responsibility or into my political education responsibility or into my advocacy responsibility. It'd be a nice mask for me to hide behind. And I think that as I've gotten older, that has fallen away where I kind of stand barefaced as a creative. And I'm learning so much about my creative shape. I'm learning about what I'm called to. I'm learning about my aesthetic. I'm also learning about what I don't know and my ability to be in a place of curiosity around that without shame or judgment and feeling like, how could you not know what that thing is? Or how could you not know how to do that? Because it's not possible for you to know how to do everything or know everything. I also think that as I've gotten older, I really look forward to the continuing kind of shedding and um, unlearning of negative messages, trauma, emotional harm, assumptions I made around who I need to be to be loved and safe. And I think that as I move more fully, I'll be 56 next year, So as I move into this like transition from my mid fifties to my late Mm fifties, I am continuing to shed those things and to shed those things. Sometimes it's not easy. That leads me back to my childhood. It leads me back to my origin story. And so how I can like return to those places from a place of compassion and kindness, first for myself, certainly for my parents. I adored my parents. My parents are both ancestors. And so it feels a little not okay to interrogate them post-mortem around mm-hmm. who I am, but they made me who I am. And so to be able to be more curious about who they are and their upbringing and how that translated to how they raised myself and my siblings has been a huge gift. As I get older, I continue to 
look forward to what they, my parents are very active ancestors. I grew up in a blended family. And so my mother and my father and my stepdad are very active (laughs) ancestors and are continuing to like reveal parts of themselves to me since they've been gone. That like helps me go, oh, that makes sense. I get it. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, new information has even been revealed to me since the pandemic that has absolutely helped me understand my mother in a way that I I don't know if she ever would have revealed that to me as a person in her living life. But it it just seems like it was so much easier for that information, that revelation to be shared as an ancestor and for there still to be love there and still to be healing available. I really love what's unfolding and what's shedding away. Oh, that's such a beautiful answer. I love that invitation to think about those that are not here in physical form in this way of still learning from them and receiving downloads and information from them. Absolutely. You know, kind of like watching over us. I love that. Always, always. Next week is my mother's 24th Ascension anniversary. It's also my father's heavenly birthday. So um, November tends to perennially be a tender time, sometimes more tender than others, (laughs) um, because grief is what it is. I'm feeling very present to them around me this time of year, but I don't feel a sadness like I have felt in years past, but I, I definitely feel the potency of their love for me. That's so precious. I love that. You mentioned origin story a few times, and I do, I want, I have so many questions around the topic of menopause. But before we go there, I'd like to hear more about your origin story. Sure. So I am a seventh generation North Carolinian, which means a lot to be able to say that as a Black Southern woman, because we've been separated from so much of our ancestry and our history that it's kind of limiting how far back you can go. Unless you've got Skip Gates, who's going to like bring you on PBS and hook you up and do the DNA swab and do all those things. But because I don't have a relationship with Dr. Gates, I have had to find my own path with different ancestry tools. But I was born in a place in eastern North Carolina that's near the coast, sits in between two rivers. So I'm both a sweet water and a salt water girl. And we moved to Washington, D.C. when I was a toddler and then to Prince George's County, Maryland, where we lived for about 11 years. And then we moved back to North Carolina where my stepdad and my mom got divorced. And I grew up in a family with a lot of cousins, lots and lots and lots of cousins. Matter of fact, I had 16 first cousins who were girls and two boys. And the boy cousins were much, much older. Mm -hmm. So they were like uncles because Mm -hmm. they were like 20 years my senior. So my dad was the eldest sibling of six. He was significantly older than my mom. He passed away when I was a baby and my mom was pregnant with my sister. And then my mom remarried our stepdad who adopted us. And so we've got this huge blended family, gaggles of cousins. Summers were just full of like brown legs and lots of hair and mosquitoes and foot races and scary stories and mischief. (laughs) And I adored it. We would split our summers when we lived in Maryland between Brooklyn, New York and New Bern, North Carolina, where I was born. And if school let out on June 6th, by June 8th, we were in a car headed 95 North or 95 South. 
And we loved it. I loved everything about summers with my cousins. Uh, there are smells that I can still like recall, music, like foods that I was introduced to. And then, you know, at the end of the summer, you would just be in this place of begging your parents to let you stay because mm-hmm. you you're going to die if you have to leave your cousins because they're your best friends and you'll never be able to go on with your life because you got to go back home, which was not true. And my youngest sister and I are 14 months apart. And so my siblings are in pairs. My elder sisters, Marianne and Michelle, are a pair. My elder brothers, Fred and Charlie Jr. are a pair. And then my sister, Georgette, and I are a pair. And we lost our first sibling back in 2018, which brings your mortality to you in a very different way because you anticipate, expect, don't look forward to your parents' transition. But when a sibling transitions, that's very close to you. And we weren't prepared for Fred's transition. We didn't know it was going to happen. He had a heart attack and died in his sleep. And so that really kind of like, again, reoriented our family shape and how we are together and how we look out for each other and the time we spend together. And then the pandemic has made that challenging because my, because my siblings are so much older. I didn't see my older siblings for over a year. And that was really, really hard because they're older. I mean, we're very mindful of their age. So I am a divorced mom of two spectacularly beautiful Black boys. My oldest son is 30, graduated from Howard University in Washington, D.C., where Chadwick Bozeman graduated from college and lives in Brooklyn, New York and is a super creative person. He's become like my creative mentor where, you know, when I'm like freaking out about something I'm working on, like we also publish an annual zine and we were about to release our third zine this year. And the first year I did the zine, I was totally freaking out to so like crying and just, I was like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. This is a really terrible idea. And why would I do this? And he was like, dude, what is wrong? I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, Che. This was a bad idea. He's like, mommy, calm down. And I was like, what if it doesn't work? He said, what if it works? Mm. Like, I don't know. Okay. He's like, just push the button. (laughs) If I push the button and it doesn't work, if you push the button and it doesn't work, then we'll figure out why it didn't work. Mm. Like you're not going to destroy anything. And I was like, okay. And I pushed the button because I was uploading it to issue so people could read it. Electronic mm-hmm. and it worked. And then I started crying because it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I called him back. I was like, it worked. And he was like, why are you crying now? I was like, I just, you know, I got worked up. He was like, oh my God, dude, you just gonna have to calm down, man. Listen, we constructed everything in this world so you can do anything you want to do. It's really up to you. You are not finished. And I was like, thank you. Wow. <laughs> Such and sage I, advice. Oh, I know. He, he's, he's a Pisces. He's, he's like mm-hmm. the bottom of the ocean. And then my little one is 14, who's not a little one anymore because he's taller than me and his dad, my ex-husband. His name is Taj. And he is quite possibly one of the sweetest people I've ever met in my whole life. And he showed up in our family just to bring just gobs of joy. Like he adores his big brother. They have a very loving relationship. He adores his dad. He also now has a little sister who's seven. He adores his little sister. He, he just, he's a, he's a sweet kid. He's a very sweet kid. I like my kids. You know, there are people I know who love their children very much, but don't really like them. Yeah. And I like my kids. They're not my peers. I don't make them my peers. 
but we are friends. I feel like that's such an interesting, I want to dive into that, what you just said a little bit, that they're not your peers, but they are your friends. I think of my peers in particular around like my generational footprints. I'm a Gen yes. Z. So we will have shared experiences through a cultural lens, through time, lived experiences. And like I use my, I'll use my cousin as an example. We were, they were born the exact same year. We both are parents. We both have buried both our parents. We have been through trials and tribulations. We are survivors of all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. so there's a way in which I know I can be vulnerable with her and she can be vulnerable with me that feels appropriate and feels held and feels reciprocal. I don't want to adultify my children. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to parent me. Yeah. So I see them as my friends. Like, you know, we have a very strong, intimate relationships where we talk about things and we share our emotions, but I do keep what I consider an appropriate parental boundary for our family around when I share things and how I share things mm-hmm. and some things that I choose not to share and we'll make a decision on whether or not they will get that information when I feel like the timing is right. I think that my experience doing social justice work makes me really keen on the fact that Black children are adultified way too soon. Their innocence, their bodily autonomy, their ability to engage in consensual relationships with people is stripped from them really, really young. And Black boys are adultified and dehumanized and people find them frightening very, very young. Mm -hmm. And so inside of our home, I am not trying to replicate a carceral system. I'm not trying to replicate a system where my boys feel like they have to be a man before they are actually an adult or where they feel like they have to parent me or caretake me, which then again, adultifies them or parentifies them in a way where they are stripped from their, their childhood. And I think that both of the boys were able to, because of the co-parenting relationships I have with their fathers and this intentional community of people that we have really sweet relationships with, they've been able to be kids in a place that's not always safe for us. Like our sleep system can be really robust despite certain things, right? And it differs by person, right? And it's always funny that like someone who is a kind of a a less than ideal sleeper weirdly is often paired up with someone who, you know, is like a really good one. And and then that just kind of feeds this like comparison of like, why can't I be like that? That sort of thing, the kind of thing you're describing. But it also, you know, oftentimes people that can have that ability to sleep so easily despite any of those other things going on. You know, sometimes they're really sleep deprived. Sometimes their sleep is just really robust and that's just kind of an individual difference. And it also means that like no individual thing is going to make the difference, right? It's really about kind of trying to kind of set up your sleep in a way that is predictable and is good for you. So I always say that like sleep is really universal, but it's also personal. Right. There are like things specific to you that you need to take into account. And some people are a little more anxious. Some people are a little more sensitive. And those things that kind of might muck around with your sleep also make you like probably pretty awesome in other ways. Right. And so it's not about like changing all these things about yourself. But, you know, sleep is so fundamental that there's probably a way to make headway despite that. Oh, I love the answer. Thank you for validating me. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. So I wanted to know a little bit more about, because I mentioned digital sleep tracking devices and then your method of handwriting it down. And you provide this nice little chart to kind of mathematically come up with your 
sleep score. Can you tell us why you believe so strongly in doing that? It's a seven day experiment, right? Where you would track your sleep to get your sleep score. Yeah. So, so the, the sleep diary that's in there, it provides information so that we can get a better understanding of how consolidated your sleep is with really the idea of like, for most people that have insomnia, they typically like to, to improve their sleep and to kind of ramp up their sleep drive, which is so critical for being able to fall asleep. You know, we often need to move their bedtime later, right? Which is like really counterintuitive, but we need kind of data to help make that estimate. And, you know, in the clinic, we have people keep sleep diaries for weeks, right? Like they, and, and so we, what I've tried to do in this book is like distill the principles down to seven days because that was like the the framework that so this book is like part of a series of books and so they're all kind of framed this way but for getting that information we actually need as many days of information as data as we can and so that's why it's the last chapter because we need people to complete their sleep diary every day to get that but regarding like why people have to do it by hand versus a wearable device it's not I mean, I think there's something to being kind of engaged in the process as like a, is your own personal sleep scientist. And for insomnia, it's often really subjective, right? So like, if you, you know, you look at your sleep number bed or like, you know, I use an aura ring and it, you know, it'll say like, oh, you know, you woke up 15 times during the night, but it's really just based on like my movement and my heart rate and that kind of stuff. And I have no recollection of this. That makes me, does that matter? Does it matter? Because we wake up a lot of times during the night and it doesn't affect necessarily affect our sleep. It could also be an artifact of the device. And so, you know, we don't want people to read too much into that. In fact, you know, some years ago, there was a, a term coined called orthosomnia, which is an insomnia that develops because people are using wearable devices. Because it, in fact, like, you know, especially the ones that give you information about your sleep architecture, right? I mean, it'll say, oh, you only got 15 minutes of deep sleep, right? That could be distressing to people. I mean, and it may be somewhere, you know, maybe you got less than normal, but the absolute numbers that are provided by these devices currently for around sleep architecture are just not up at, to the standard of what we would get in the sleep laboratory, which is like the gold standard, right? But, you know, people feel like it's that way. And so it's, you know, that, that can be problematic, that can be distressing and can kind of be not going in the right direction when you're trying to get your sleep back on track. Certainly. Yeah. I also have an aura ring as well as the sleep number. Bed. <laughs> so I, I spotted I it. I spotted it when you live. Yeah. The many devices that, that track my sleep. Yeah. So I'm going to give this writing it down a try for a while and see how that goes. I want to dive into the topic of homeostatic sleep drive, which you talk about a sleep pressure and yeah. also circadian rhythm. And those are two different things that you're discussing. I think probably most of us are more familiar with the term circadian rhythm, but if you just give a brief overview of each and how they're different and why they're important. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of the two primary processes that like regulate our sleep. So our circadian rhythm is, you know, from what people, you know, surely heard about, particularly since we just had daylight savings and we experienced it in real time and we always do is kind of your internal clock. Right. And when we think about sleep, we think about kind of your alerting signals that happen throughout the day. So like, you know, when you, when you wake up in the morning, you know, your alertness starts to increase and then it kind of wanes as it get as sun, as the sun goes down. Right. And that's, that's your circadian rhythm playing a role. Like in, in sunlight plays an incredible role in 
kind of entraining that rhythm, but other things do too. Like when you have your meal times and, and things like that. And the thing that also people think about when they think about their circadian rhythm is, is melatonin secretion. So if your pineal gland kind of releases melatonin when it's dark out, and that kind of sets the table for your body to, it kind of cues it that, you know, it's, it's getting close to bedtime to go to sleep. The other process, which is independent of your circadian rhythm is called your homeostatic sleep drive. And I like to think of it as it's kind of like a balloon, like where you wake up in the morning, your balloon is flat. And then you, as you go throughout the day, it kind of builds up and builds up and builds up and builds up with sleepiness. Right. And we think we understand what that sleepiness is, a neurochemical in your brain called adenosine. And so adenosine builds up. And then, you know, when it gets to kind of a, a really big amount, you feel those sleepiness cues, you go to sleep and it kind of drains out throughout the night. Right. Like, you, you know, drains out that sleepiness. And so those things together, when you're kind of your balloon is really big and your circadian rhythm alerting signals are really low, then you go to sleep. That's like a nice kind of set up sleep thing, right? But like when, you know, there's a change, when you you travel across the country in time zones or you have daylight savings, you can have this shift of like your circadian rhythm is not aligned with your homeostatic sleep drive. That makes sleep work less well, but can get back on track. But I mean, those are the two things that in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is what this book tries to distill, you know, what we capitalize on, because those are just part of your biology, right? And so we're just leveraging those to help people sleep in a more predictable fashion. And so is it fair to think of circadian rhythm as like, for example, I said, I like to go to bed earlier and I usually wake up earlier. So my circadian rhythm is different than my spouse's in that he's definitely a night owl and he sleeps in a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a great example. So relative to your partner, you have a, a more advanced sleep phase, right? And he has a more delayed sleep phase, right? And so there's people that are night owls. There are people that are that like to get up earlier. They're like, you know, love that sunrise, our morning larks. But, you know, most people kind of fit are in the, on the middle, you know, like it's, it, there are people on the extreme end, like certainly in our clinic, you know, we get a number of people that are kind of have extreme delayed sleep phase syndrome. And so everything in their life is typically okay until like their job requires them to have an early morning meeting. And now like their, their life is not kind of aligned with their rhythm and so we can try to shift their rhythm a little bit, but oftentimes it's genetically driven. And so it just becomes real challenging and trying to kind of manage your life because it's when rhythms are, when your circadian rhythm is kind of like in, in an extreme mode, oftentimes just the world isn't set up for you, right? And it's like, it's really hard. Like it's really hard. And so it's it's oftentimes people end up getting different jobs or constantly are working towards kind of that shift. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to speak to, in terms of building sleep pressure throughout the day, as it relates to the section on staying up late. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So if you did all the things in the steps, or if you were in our clinic, right, and you like kept the sleep diary, right, we would get an understanding of like, of the amount of time that you have opportunity for sleep. So like the time you go to bed to the time you wake up, how much of that is actual sleep? And sometimes people have some problems on the front end. So they get in, say they get in bed at eight o'clock, but they don't fall asleep till 11 o'clock. So that's like three hours of not being able to sleep. And then based on that information, we get something called someone's sleep efficiency score. And that's, I guess that's like the sleep score that you're mentioning. So it's like of the opportunity, how much of that was sleep, right? And for someone who has, you know, a good healthy level, 
and is like under the age of 65, it's around like 85%. Like if you have 85% of your sleep opportunity is sleep, that like that's that's really great. But oftentimes people with insomnia, it's it's much lower. And so what we do is we we ensure that everyone has a stable wake time, right? So we want to kind of set someone's circadian clock by having a stable wake time. And that's basically when we're going to start where the balloon is going to start blowing up, right? That I talked about before. And so, but to get someone's sleep consolidation up higher, kind of their sleep efficiency score higher, we actually shrink the opportunity. So we keep the wake time the same, but we move the bedtime later, right? So, and that's all based on the data that we have from the individual keeping the sleep diary. And it's like on average. So we might decrease someone's bedtime. We'd say, oh, well, you know, if it takes you three hours to fall asleep at eight, and you sleep through the whole night, but it's like this three hour period, maybe we you know, don't let you go to bed until 11, right? That three hours. And what happens is that sleep balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger because now you're awake more and you're not laying in bed where you do get some of that kind of like that, some of that sleepiness seeping out of it. And so that pressure becomes really overwhelming to where if you do that over time, people are just like watching the clock, wanting to get in bed, right? They want to get in bed to go to sleep because they're so sleepy. And like, they know they can't go to bed any earlier than 11 in this case. And that's really a crazy shift in their brain, right? Like before starting this, they think, you know, sleep is completely unattainable, right? Like it's like this thing that they they haven't seen and or felt in, in years and years. And their experience of sleepiness is, is not one that's natural. It's, they just feel tired all the time, but they never feel sleepy, right? And there is a distinction there. But if you begin to do this, and this is really just based on everything we know about how the biology works, they get reacquainted with that sleepiness. And so what happens is if you get it right, like on the sleep timing, when they get in bed, they fall asleep quickly. They tend to sleep through the night. It may not be as much sleep as they want, but it's consolidated sleep. And it turns out that that consolidated sleep just feels better. It feels more restorative than that same amount of sleep or even a little bit more sleep broken up. Right. Like, and so as you do that, people begin to feel more confident that they can sleep. Right. It, like, it's like the, the, the ability to give someone back their sleep is like the best gift I've ever experienced because when people are able to sleep, everything else kind of opens up their life. Just everything's a little bit brighter. Right. Like, they're like better parents, they're better partners, they're more empathetic. We can deal with stress better. We're more creative, we're more productive. And so, this way of doing this, once we kind of get their sleep consolidated, we then begin to slowly back out that bedtime, right? We'll make it a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier and a little bit earlier until we see that like, look, if we make it too early, like eight o'clock, maybe you really actually can't fill up that whole time with sleep. And so we kind of find a sweet spot. It typically is like a little bit later than people were doing before. And that's because people with insomnia are so nervous about not getting sleep that they kind of like account for that time. They're like, well, you know, I only get five hours of sleep, but I better give myself like nine hours in bed because I need, you know, I don't know when I'm going to get those five hours. And so, but that's, that's part of the problem that undermines how sleep's supposed to work. So there's a couple of things that I'm hearing. One, setting your wake time is really yes. important. And you talk about this in the book as being the first thing that you do, I believe, right? And then secondly, I think I'm hearing you say, when you're delaying someone's sleep like this to compress the sleep time, maybe it's a shorter period, we're not laying in bed reading or sitting in bed watching TV until we can let ourselves go to sleep. We're not in bed at all. We're doing right. something else, right? Right, exactly, exactly. So 
I guess the follow-up question then is like, what would you recommend somebody do with that time from eight to 11 PM that they usually (laughs) sit there in bed? What are they doing to kind of cool down, relax? I mean, I'm sure this is maybe like basic sleep hygiene kind of stuff, preparing, lowering the lights, that kind of thing. But that's a lot of time. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. And I mean, it's a, you know, and it's a great point. And I, I mean, it is definitely part of the kind of the discussion, right? Cause like people are like, what do you like? And, and it's something that's like, it's like an identity thing. They're like, I don't stay up late. Like, I'm not a late person. Like, what do you mean? I'm going to have to like, wait, like what you're like, it's so dark. It's so late. Like I never stay up that late. Like, what am I possibly going to do? And, you know, one of the things that we have to be careful about is some people are like, oh, well, you know, I'll just work later. And it's like, no, like, like, you know, and so it's really about one, making sure that we demarcate like a specific transition period. It is so common for people to just feel like they can just like shut down, like, like, like closing a laptop. It's like, okay, laptop's done. Brain closes, go to sleep. And it just doesn't work that way, you know, and it's not supposed to work that way. And so, you know, because it requires a lot of kind of environmental and kind of ritual type things that tell your body what to do. I mean, your body, your brain is like a predicting machine. It's like just constantly taking in information from the environment and trying to figure out what it should be doing to kind of keep you alive right? and keep you to, and let you thrive. Right. And so the more predictable the information can be, the better their predictions are. In that way, a lot of things that go on in the environment help tell us when we're supposed to go to sleep. And so it's important to kind of build in that time to allow you to kind of wind down and do things in a consistent manner so that your brain begins to learn like, oh, when I do this, it means this, right? Like when I brush my teeth at night, like it means we're getting closer to bedtime or, you know, something like that. But I mean, I think, again, getting back to the idea that like sleep is universal, but personal, it's really not about the things that people do. Though, of course, there are some no, you know, things you shouldn't do, but it's like, what feeling are you trying to produce? I always use the example where like, I always thought reading was like the thing, Like I was like, oh, like you just try reading something. And like, for me, it's like two pages and I'm like, oh my God, like I can't, I can't stay awake. Other people, they're like, oh, I'm not sleeping at all, but like, I've read 10 books this week. And like, what what kind of world is this? And so, you know, I've like learned over time that like, no, it can't just be like something. I mean, I, so basically I give like a menu of things. I'm like, okay, like maybe reading, maybe listen to music, maybe I had someone who like was really into sewing. And so she would just do that, you know, and for her, it was just really meditative. And, Mm -hmm. but there was like a line where she, sometimes she'd get into like a flow state and like, it would be four in the morning and she's just like, keeps going. So, you know, we, it's kind of back and forth of trying to figure out like what works for people. Cause the idea is to really produce this kind of low arousal, kind of slightly positive feeling. And that there are some kind of things that everyone likes, but like, it's not that way. And so like, for me, it's like watching television that I've seen before. I'll like rewatch the office over and over and over. And it's that kind of thing where like, you know, watching TV is fine. There is concerns about blue light. Some people are really sensitive to that. And so if you're someone that's sensitive to that, then you should put a filter on it. But for me, it's really about the content that people are consuming, right? Like that kind of reward system that in our brain that like keeps us coming back. That's what we want to avoid. Internet, social media, like it's designed to keep you coming back. That's how it makes its revenue. And so it's usually something to like avoid for most people. Same with like Netflix and like binging series. This is not the time to do that because you're trying to wind down. But other things that are relaxing to you, those are all fair game because we're just trying to produce that kind of relaxation to let your body go, like to let let your mind go and allow you to drift off to sleep. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com. <laughs>